Welcome everyone to um, this event on reimagining capitalism in a world on fire, uh, hosted by the Marshall Institute. Um, my name is Nava Ashraf. I'm professor of economics at the LSC and research director at the Marshall Institute. And it is my great honor and privilege to be welcoming Professor Rebecca Henderson uh, to join us today. Professor Henderson is one of 24 uh, university professors at Harvard, which is an incredible um, position to be in. But in that position, she has done such extraordinary work that, for example, just to give you one example, the course that she teaches at Harvard Business School, it's called Reimagining Capitalism, Business and Big Problems, is so popular and so impactful and transformational that if you ever meet a student that's taken that course, you will know immediately because they look at the world totally differently. I have seen such, I'm like, really, this is a business school student? And that is the, the legacy of Professor Henderson, and I'm so excited that we'll be learning much more about her ideas, her frameworks of, of ways of thinking. Professor Henderson is a fellow of the, both the British Academy and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She's an expert in innovation and organizational change. Just last year, she was um, named one of the three outstanding directors in the world by the Financial Times. But beyond all of that, she's someone whose heart is extraordinary. And I think in order for us to do the kind of impact that she's going to ask us to aspire to, I hope we also aspire to the kind of human being that Professor Henderson has created in her life. And um, thank you so much for being with us. It's such a pleasure to have you. Nava, thank you very much. I am, I am deeply honored by your invitation and uh, a little embarrassed by your introduction. <laughs> Let me assure everyone who's taken the time to sign on that I am completely human and, uh, and, uh, and just as grumpy as the next person when occasion <laughs> demands. Um, it is a pleasure to be here, to have the chance to talk about my new book, Reimagining Capitalism, How Business Can Save the World. And that's an audacious title, but it's really about how business could save the world. It's the story of my MBA class, Reimagining Capitalism, Business and the Big Problems. I've tried to write a pragmatic road view to how business could make a difference against the enormous and terrible problems we face. Sometimes people say to me, well, why do we have to reimagine capitalism? To which my answer is, because it is not working. <laughs> capitalism is, I believe, one of the great inventions of the human race. I think free and fair markets are an unparalleled source of innovation and productivity and growth. But markets only work their magic when they're genuinely free and fair, when everyone can participate and prices reflect real costs. And right now, we're living through a moment where prices do not decidedly not reflect real costs. And many, many people cannot compete, cannot participate in the capitalist enterprise. So the question is what to do? Some answers, the textbook answer, let's talk about climate change for a moment. One of the central problems facing us, I believe it's an existential challenge to our civilization. I wake up at four in the morning thinking about the world we're going to leave our children. And it has a textbook answer. And the textbook answer is, well, make sure the prices reflect real costs. Right now, if I were to use $10 worth of coal-fired electricity, 
Imagine I had a cloud of electrons in my hand, okay? $10 worth of coal-fired electricity. It would power my cell phone for about 10 years. Sounds like a pretty good deal, right? But this $10 worth of electricity causes at least $8 worth of harm to human health and at least another $8 worth of climate damage. So the, the real price of this $10 worth of electricity is not $10, but something more like $26. So the textbook answer to solving our problem is, well, let's set a price on um, carbon. Let's make sure that every time someone burns coal, they pay for the damage that they cause. And so the people who are trying to sell me solar or wind no longer have to run with weights on their feet, but can in fact sell me coal and wind and we transition the economy. And we transition the economy to being our carbon-free um, so the textbook answer is let's just get the prices right. And the textbook answer to problems like inequality is let's make sure we have the education and the healthcare and the workplace legislation that ensures every job is a decent job and everyone can compete for it. So all we need are the foundations of strong, prosperous societies. Yes, the free market, but a democratically accountable, transparent, competent government that can balance the free market and a strong civil society to balance both of them. And by a strong civil society, I mean a free media that tells the truth and is widely respected. I mean an independent judiciary. I mean some kind of voice for employees, some and, and NGOs. So some kind of way. And, and these three pillars, I mean, this is basic political science, basic development economics. How, what made the rich, the West rich and free, free markets, decent government, and strong civil society. So that's the answer. And then the government can set the carbon price because that's what people want to happen and uh, make sure we have the education and healthcare and we're done. Here's the problem. It, it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon. Our governments are under enormous stress. The very problems that capitalism has created, the perception that the game is rigged, that um, my children are no longer going to get ahead. The fact that most of the wealth that's been created over the last 20 years has gone to the top one, two, five percent of, of, the, of the population has created enormous distrust in business and in government. Uh, the perception is that that's just the elites and they don't care. And that perception, in turn, has created a strong move towards populism. So we are seeing many institutions under threat right across the world, from media to the judiciary to the democracy. All we need is someone on the throne who can represent the popular will, who is me, who gets me, and they'll fix all the problems. The oldest lie of all that a single individual can fix things, but we're seeing it in Turkey, in Hungary, in Poland, and perhaps in my own country, in the United States. So what do we do? What do we do as business people? Well, here's my crazy idea. I really do think business can save the world. Why? Well, because it's in business's interest. 
I think there's a moral case. I'm happy to talk more about that. In fact, I think there's a strong moral case that everyone who counts themselves a capitalist and cares about prosperity and freedom should be deeply committed to reimagining capitalism and to rebalancing our system. But let's put the moral case to one side because, you know, I have 25 years corporate board experience. I teach in a business school. I understand it's about the bottom line. So what's the business case for solving capitalism? Let's start at the collective level. I would suggest that if business spoke with one voice, if you could imagine, it wouldn't be business as we understand it. But suppose now that you ran all of capitalism, okay? I think you would be deeply interested in fixing climate change. I think climate change is a very serious threat to the future of your business. When all the great coastal cities are going to be underwater, when the harvests fail, sending hundreds of millions of people desperately migrating, when we see political fights break out over food and water, which I think we can definitely see if we do not address climate change. I mean, more than 3 million acres burned in California this summer. We say, oh, it's the hottest year in the last 100 years. That's the wrong thing to say. It's the coolest year in the next 100. This is not good for business. And raging inequality is not good for business either. Who are we going to sell to if most people are struggling to get by? Where is our, our future workforce going to come for, from if we're practicing widespread exclusion? How can we build a society that works for all of us is we, we know historically that that means having people who have decent jobs, at decent wages. So I think there's a strong business case for doing the right thing. Well, you're going to say, well, that's nice, Rebecca, but that's a collective business case. I made Nava CEO of the entire world, and I said that she had a business case, and I kind of maybe believe that, yeah, okay, but she doesn't own the whole world. And climate change is a classic externality. I can put solar panels on my roof and make a difference. But if the guy next door doesn't, he doesn't suffer. But, you know, he free rides on my doing the right thing. And addressing inequality, I mean, Rebecca, that's a big issue. You're talking about fixing education and healthcare, and you want me to uh, fix the democracy, and I'm busy, right? So how are we going to do that? Well, the 288 pages <laughs> lay out some sense of how that might happen. But let me give you a flavor for it by telling you a story. And this is a story about my friend, Eric Osmondson, who left a cushy job in private equity to become the CEO of a garbage company. Uh, this is not a classic career move, but Eric wanted to make a difference. And he thought that changing the way we handle trash could reduce global emissions by hundreds of millions of tons. And all the data suggests that's right, in fact, that we need to completely revolutionize the way we think about handling our trash. So Eric comes to work. He's full of all the like, hey, I'm purpose-driven. I'm going to change the world. He shows up. What does he find? He finds an industry that is deeply corrupt. Most firms were cutting costs by disposing of waste illegally. This is a Norwegian waste company. But both the company he took over, Norske and Vinning, and his competitors were doing things like mislabeling, municipal wa uh, mun mislabeling medical waste and dumping it, dumping it in the municipal waste stream, dumping toxic chemicals in fjords off the coast of Oslo. Off the coast of Oslo. I mean, so he said, okay, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to run clean. We are going to 
dispose of all our trash appropriately, and I am going to raise prices to cover the costs of doing so. The first thing that happened is half his senior team quit, taking their customers with them. So did a bunch of his customers. His competitors denounced him for bringing the industry into disrepute because he went public with what he'd found. But here's the thing. People like doing the right thing. Those employees who stayed became an innovation powerhouse. And we have a lot of research consistent with this, that when they had a clear purpose to work for and they thought what they were doing was going to make a difference, that they discovered all kinds of legal ways to cut costs. His investors said, we're not sure, but we think doing the right thing could be the best strategy in the long term and we're willing to back you. He was able to persuade several customers to pay more and many of his competitors to join him in refusing to dispose of waste illegally. It got much harder for regulators to stay on the sidelines. And so they were also able to shape the regulatory environment so that bottom feeding firms could not survive. Eric now runs Norsk Genvening, one of the largest and most successful recycling companies in Scandinavia. He built a very successful business model based on an economy of scale and high-tech waste recycling. He has completely transformed the waste business in Scandinavia, and he's hoping to do it right across Europe. He would be the first to tell you that he's no hero, that it required a team working with him. But this is the way we reimagine capitalism. We build purpose-driven firms, firms who view their mission as solving important human problems. And by the way, I have to make money because it's a firm, but making money and giving a decent returns to investors is a means to an end and not the end. And they have the vision and the courage to pioneer new business models and to demonstrate that they work to everyone else. We change the way we manage people. We use high road employment models. We manage people with dignity and respect, pay them decent wages, reasonable benefits, and give them the tools they need to get on with the job and to release that engagement and passion that these kinds of workforces have for their work. We persuade investors that their money is on the line and that continuing to tolerate massive problems like climate change and inequality is a long-term threat to their portfolio, and that, by the way, picking out the firms who are moving first is a great way to drive returns. We persuade our competitors to join with us in doing the right thing so that doing the right thing is what everybody does, and no one is at a competitive disadvantage for doing it. And last but not least, we remake democracy. Because unless and until we have accountable, transparent, genuinely democratic regimes that can set the rules of the game so that everyone has to do the right thing, these kinds of purpose-driven firms will always be looking over their shoulders. So that's, uh, that's how, to, uh, how business can save the world in uh, 15 minutes. As I say, the original is 288 pages, but uh, that's, the, that's the core idea. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Henderson and Rebecca. I, um, 
so, so I wanted to encourage the, the audience, um, all 300 of you, to, to write um, your questions into the Q&A. And you can also upvote the questions, and I'm going to start integrating them into uh, the conversation we're going to have now. So um, I, I want to start actually with, with the powerful thing you started us out with, the sort of massive distrust in society right now. We don't know what information we can trust. We don't know whether to trust the media. We're all in our own bubbles. And um, all the institutions that people thought they could trust uh, seem to be crumbling to some degree or, or untrustworthy. Um, and, I, and I particularly think about business in the context that you're talking about. Of course, there's always been some kind of suspicion against business, precisely for the reasons you said, for the profit maximization motive. But now that the profit maximization motive, as you pointed out, is um, actually benefits from having talented employees who want purpose-driven firms, investors who want to invest in purpose-driven firms, consumers who want to support purpose-driven firms. Now there's a strong profit motive to be a purpose-driven firm. But how do we know who's a purpose-driven firm? So you, we have, you know that there are thousands of, of companies now claiming to be purpose-driven firms. So that mistrust is actually uh, potentially could get much worse as more and more companies realize the profit incentives to uh, appearing that they are changing the world, but not actually changing the world. Yeah. And I never know whether this is good news or bad news that so many firms are relabeling them like, oh, of course, I'm purpose driven. Exactly. Um, and it's just bullshit, right, to Absolutely. make a, a, as a technical phrase. So, um, and, and it could be even worse. I mean, even worse than not saying it. Right. right. No, absolutely. Like, it creates imagine the employees who become totally disillusioned. More cynicism, more disillusionment. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, um, so as I said, I 25 years corporate board experience. If we're going to do something, we need to measure it. Unless, it, unless we measure, we don't manage, right? What, what gets measured gets managed. So we need measures. We need measures for all kinds of reasons. We need measures for the firms themselves so that when they commit to making a difference in the world, they can track that progress. I mean, if you tell your employees, yes, we're committed to making a difference in the world, but you have no measure of what you're trying to achieve or you're not you know, tracking the milestones towards it, they're not going to believe you. That's not authentic purpose. When you turn to your investors and say, I'm going to try solving some of these problems because I think I can build a strong business model around it, but it may be bumpy in the beginning. I'm going to change how I treat my employees. That'll be a little bit expensive up front. I'm going to uh, not dump my garbage in the fjord. I'm going to recycle it instead. It's, it's going to take me a little while to get the business model going, which realistically, any new business model takes time and takes effort. The investors are going to say, nice story. What are you going to measure? What are the milestones going to be? I believe that most capital markets are not inherently short term in the sense that they are hostile to long-term investment. I think they focus on short-term results because they want to be sure that the company is well-managed and that they're delivering what they promised. But I think they often suspect that mumbling about the long-term is just mumbling. So if you're Jeff Bezos at Amazon and you have a clear and coherent business case, 
They'll give you hundreds of millions of dollars before you turn a profit. If you're a pharmaceutical firm and you want to say, I want to do basic investment in genetic research, it won't pay off for 15 years, but trust me, it will pay off. I was on the board of a biotech company. We got billion, we invested billions of dollars and the investors were fine with it because they understood what it was. So measures are a way of communicating to other communities about what it is you're trying to do, first and foremost to your employees, secondly and incredibly important to your investors, but then more broadly to the world. I'm a huge fan of so-called impact accounts. Mm -hmm. uh, my colleague, George Seraphim, has just helped found the uh, Impact Weighted Accounts Initiative at the Harvard Business School, but there are tons of great people working in this space. And so Ronald Cohen has just published a fantastic book called Impact. Yeah, and the idea we had is, as part of the series, actually. Oh, well, so it's perfect. So it's you know it. It's a to, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And the big idea, I'll just summarize it very quickly, is, you know, not only do you tell, um, do you report environmental, social and governance metrics, so you say what your carbon footprint is, what you're investing in your employees and how you're governed, but you also report what impact you have on the world. And, um, you know, how much damage you're causing and how much good you're causing and the striking result from the first pass results of this research project, which is 1800 firms, all public access, so anyone can have a look, is that a for a third of those 1800 firms, the environmental damage they're causing is bigger than their profits. For another yes. third, for another third, it's bigger than 25% of the profits. So, and you, you can look at the difference between firms. So I see these kinds of metrics as a fabulous way to begin to build trust in those firms that deserve it and to really shine a spotlight on those firms that are causing havoc and, uh, and queering the pitch for the rest of us. Yeah. And, and, and it, I do think, I mean, I think because people are coming around to measurement, there has to be a sort of simultaneous education about what is good measures and what is bad measures because it kind of could all look like quantitative measures. And so actually, if we don't develop the education as, as, as the citizenry, as the investors in, um, in actually what is, what is proper measurement or not, we're not going to be able to provide the right incentives to firms, right? Well, I'm sure Sir Cohen said this, but it took us over 100 years to develop financial accounts. Before the 1940s, if you looked at Procter & Gamble's annual report, it said we made, and I'm picking a number, $28 million in revenue this year and 340000 340, $100,000 $340, um, in profit. A lot. <laughs> a lot. A lot of profit. Stockholders wishing for further details may apply to our headquarters in Cincinnati in person. It was the Great Depression that led to really serious financial accounting. And we've been fighting about the details of financial accounts ever since. It's tricky. It's hard. Making sure that what's reported on the balance sheet and on the cash flow statement actually reports the operation of the company is super hard. And one of the reasons that there's such interest in ESG is that even apart from these massive social and environmental problems that we need to solve, it's increasingly clear to many investors that there are a ton of non-financial quantities that are not well captured by classical accounts. 
So the search for material, replicable, auditable, non-financial metrics, every investor should want to know, well, how much are you investing in your workforce? What is your reputation with your community and your customers? These are, you know, material information that you want to know how to value the firm. But absolutely, as you know, we're in the middle of a, can I use the word food fight? I mean, a huge fight about exactly which of these measures are good and what's going to work. And I'm fine with that. You know, I spent the first 20 years of my career studying innovation. This is massive innovation in how, in the deep plumbing of capitalism, but that's how change is driven. And so I think it's encouraging to see so much ferment and so much engagement. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, So the the next question is actually you, you, you began to address it by making me the CEO of, the, of all the companies in the world. <laughs> um, and you would be and, great, Nava. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> but with great, great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> and so, um, I, and, and you know, and, and exactly hitting on, on the challenge there. So I'm going to actually read this question right directly because it's, it's very well articulated. Um, many economists, most famously Marx, define capitalism not as free markets, but as markets plus the private ownership of capital. Some, like John Romer, argue that the market fixes that could be applied to climate change will never happen as long as there is private ownership of capital because the benefits of fossil fuel, et cetera, are concentrated in a powerful minority while the costs are distributed across the population. And that's the tragedy of the commons kind of issue that you were bringing up. So there will always be a powerful lobby that can organize themselves and be much better at getting change against any meaningful action. How would you address this? I mean, this is the classic problem where, you know, you have absolute uh, interest, but then you have a diffuse interest that, and that's the, that's the argument for right. government, right? Right. That's right. the argument for government. So how can, are you arguing that business could change the world in absence of, of, of a centralized government that can fix these market failures? I am not. The most important chapter in my book is chapter seven, which is called Keeping What Has Made Us Rich and Free. And in that chapter, I argue that business should disarm, that they should actively lobby for controls on political spending, that they should actively lobby to strengthen democracy everywhere, to make sure that they have a countervailing force. Because the a person who asked the question is, of course, completely right. Mm. And when I teach my class, we spend a bunch of time with the fact that the fossil fuel industry mm. has succeeded in corrupting a wide variety of political systems worldwide, pumping literally hundreds of millions of dollars into climate denial and into buying regulators who will refuse to pass carbon legislation. So what are the tools we know to overcome that? I believe we only have historically had one power successful tool to overcome that. And that is the people rising up and saying, you are killing our children and denying us a future. And that what we need to do is strengthen democracy. So absolutely, I agree with the questioner, if, if that was what the question said, that the democracy is the only solution, that a legitimate um, competent, transparent, accountable government is the only solution to the problem that we face. And I make the argument that business has a strong business case for pushing for it. One of my goals in writing the book was to try and catalyze the very large number of firms that are not fossil fuel companies. 
that really stand to lose from what's happening in so many ways to support them in standing up in public and saying, we strongly support our carbon price if it is the populace, you know, supported by the populations, not that you should force it, not that we should be trying to drive the political outcome. And this is why I think that civics are so important. I say business should get involved in civics, mm. which is how do we make sure that the political process is as responsive as can be? Now, it might be the case that we had perfect democracy and good information everywhere, and people still said, we don't care about our children. Um, you know, let's fry the planet. I mean, I, I'm not that worried. And you tell me it's 3% on my electricity bill. I don't want to pay it. That might still happen. But if that's what a majority of the world's population decided after having all the facts, I think we'd have to live with it. I don't think that's where people will go. I think that I, I trust humanity. I really do. I think, yes, we're wired to be selfish, but we're also wired to be deeply cooperative and to care a ton about our children and the world that we leave to them and to care about the fact that, you know, California's on fire and it's just going to get worse. So uh, so we're beginning to see serious political support for action on climate change. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I completely agree with you that we're we're wired to to care for others and I very strongly, um, yeah, you, you know that my own research is about that too. But and I think the key is what you said, after they have all the facts. Yeah. And we live in a world where facts are not real in some way. And so, you know, why California's on fire is up for grabs for a lot of people. Right. And so the causal inference that people are making, looking at the data in the world is radically um, partisan right. and politicized. So one of the reasons I wrote this book, as unlikely as it might seem, I mean, I could have written a book about we have to get politically active, we have to remake <laughs> our democracy. I mean, there are two reasons I didn't write that book. One, I know nothing. I'm a business school professor. But the other is um, it turns out most people trust the firm they work for. Yes, trust in business worldwide has fallen. But for many people, and this is from the Edelman Trust Survey, the most trusted institution is the firm they work for. And so firms are an incredibly powerful position to give people accurate information. And in purpose-driven firms, which are explicitly focused on these larger social and environmental issues, there's a very strong incentive to tell people what's happening and why we're moving in this direction. So if you're working for a, a company that's trying to develop, say, plant-based substitutes for meat, you know a ton about the effect of agriculture on climate change, and you know a ton about the way in which supply chain uh, suppresses and excludes the marginalized and, and the poor. Yeah. Um, and so these firms become, and again, I'm not saying this is going to save the world, and I'm not saying it's here tomorrow, but I've seen it often enough to know that it is possible. These firms become breeding grounds of people who feel they have real agency and have the facts. And often they get involved in local politics. Often they reach out to friends. So again, I don't think, you know, all of business is going to do this tomorrow, but even having a critical mass that is really awake and aware of this agenda would make, I think, an enormous difference. 
Yeah, is, and is I, making an enormous difference. And I, I think actually having those concrete examples that you bring out in your book, that's why I recommend to everyone to read this book because you know, those, that experience to be able to have that evidence. And I think it's also it gives firms that maybe didn't have as much courage at the beginning a pathway to follow, to understand what is, what is an appropriate pathway. How have other people done this and made it work? Well, that, that's the thing is everyone's at a, God, I'm going to sound so American. Everyone's at a different stage on their journey. But it is true. I mean, for some firms, it's just like, what is ESG? Why should we be even thinking about these issues? But there's progress to be made at every step, you know, all the way to firms that have pulled together every other firm in their industry and said, okay, we have to raise the standards in this industry. Let's all pay our employees more. Let's all invest in local colleges and universities. And if we all do it, we'll all be better off. It's super interesting. The fast fashion industry is That's at a, a real moment of decision, I think, because the industry has been just clobbered by the pandemic. I mean, we are not rushing out and buying clothes. And um, if there's going to be a very significant economic downturn, as I think there may be, that depression may continue. And the industry is one of the most polluting in the entire world. I mean, between each one of us throws away some ridiculous number of armfuls of clothes every year, like 18. I mean, the number is just bizarrely high. And, you know, and, it, and every t-shirt takes hundreds of gallons of water to make and and so the industry is now faced with, well, we could double down on the old model or we could do something different. And there are a few firms, a few entrepreneurial firms out in front modeling what that might look like with a supply chain that is just to the people that they employ, producing sustainable products that people love at, um, with much less damage to the environment. And so that, that is the model. But, but everybody has to move, Right. Yeah. Because if only a few firms move and they try and get everyone to pay a little bit more, then the people doing the old model say, oh, you know, come and get your cheap and dirty T-shirts over here. So, um, and if, it, you know, it, it requires everybody to move together. So very interesting question as to whether people in that industry and others will have the foresight to understand that, like, right, let, let's, do this, let's do this together. It, it's sort of, I'm sort of advocating for collusion in the public good. And, Very and uh, th those of you who are, who are listening or watching who are lawyers will go, whoa, you know, not so. So, of course, one would need to be careful on this front. But collusion in the public good is, is you know, has been shown to be legal under several legal regimes. Um, and, and certainly it ought to be. Um, I think, you know, great. The, the, the fast fashion is a fascinating case study because I think it's um, it also you know, where each, each company in that industry will go is very much a function of their interpretation of consumer demand and how elastic consumer demand is, how much it might be changeable through education or basically can people's preferences change? Um, because part of what people love is, is, is that the clothes are cheap. So if I can get my t-shirt for $10, why am I paying 30? Right. right? And so do I believe that the same person who wants to like every year get a new t-shirt for $10 is really truly willing to pay 30 at some point and value that? And, and basically it's, it's a kind of about your assessment of how quickly the consumer demand curve can be pushed out. Um, by so um, you notice I haven't mentioned consumers as a driver of this change, 
because I think they're actually a very weak read. So consumer demand will get us a fair way in food and in high status goods like Tesla's, but it's really not strong. Most people will switch if they can be persuaded that it's the same product, that it meets the same needs and it's the same price and it's sustainably produced. A lot of people will switch, but very few people will pay more. That's why I talk about this as a collective action problem is if you start trying to sell $30 t-shirts and I'm selling $10, it's going to be tricky. I'll get my little niche market, but it won't go any deeper. We have to gradually raise expectations as to what t-shirts should cost. And that's harder. Now, I don't think we need to raise them as high as everyone thinks. It's not literally from 10 to 30 that actually addressing problems like climate change is going to cost much less than we think once we focus on it. I mean, we're talking about you know, 3% of GDP to address the problem of climate change, maybe, and costs of 10 or 12 or 15% of GDP, not to mention the untold human suffering and the destruction of much in the natural world. So, you know, I, I, I think we can make it work, but it's, it's persuading people to inch up in the short term, um, which is why government is going to be super important because in some industries, just, government's just going to have to insist. Yeah. No, nope. you know, you're going to pay the full cost of the energy you're using or you're going to pay a living wage. And yes, that will raise prices a bit. Right. And so sort of the action of, of governments and then the action of, of investors and then the hope to, you know, select and retain good talent. You find that as a faster driver, basically. Of, of then, and then the consumer demand, because it can be fickle and because it may take a while for me to value, you know, things like supply chain. Um, uh, right. So, so the big reason for the fast fashion people to move is um, because of pressure on their brands. Is, is consumers are so fickle this way, but they won't pay more, but they hate it when you do really bad things. And when the NGOs show you up as doing really bad things and they keep doing that and they make enough of a row, then at least for the leading edge firms that like to think of themselves as, you know, good firms and you're trying to hire good people, you begin to develop a business case to move. Yeah. And that's what happened in the food business. That's what happened around the big consumer goods companies who came together to try and stop deforestation in the big commodities like beef and soy and palm was because consumers were just going batshit at pictures of dying gorilla, dying orangutans grasping the last palm tree as everything else went up in, in flames and, you know, the destruction of the Amazon. And, but it, there wasn't a business model for any single firm to commit to buying deforestation-free beef or palm too expensive. You have to have everybody else do it. And then it's marginal. I mean, nobody sees the increase in, in price at the end. It's, it's a matter of cents in every product. But that cent is where the competition has. You know, three cents, uh, right. that's where the competition is. So everybody increases, agrees to increase the price of soda, which is a real example. Both Coke and Pepsi are very much committed to buying deforestation-free palm oil. Um, for, the, for their snack business, you know, it's marginal increases in price, but everybody has to do it. Yeah. And I, and I think this goes to one of the, the questions in the Q&A, which is about the, the, the sort of role of incentives, which you've been talking about all along, you know, really using that um, economic, financial, reputational, you know, um, as a way of, and, and I think like uh, the, the kind of, once the firms understand what's in their collective uh, interest, then there's a there's an interest towards collusion as, as you kind of mentioned right. yeah um let me i i um i'm gonna uh bring up a couple questions that have to do with 
I don't know. I don't know if I should call them alternative models. I mean, certainly there's a question that's, that's very much about alternative models, which is, do you think there's an argument for a more socialism point of view to be adopted rather than imagining capitalism? Uh, would it be more likely or successful? I mean, I, and you know, um, this obviously varies a lot in Europe versus uh, the U.S. Or so in, uh, but but there's there's a clear movement, especially both uh, from a younger generation towards back towards socialism. Mm -hmm. And it's a completely alternative model. I mean, seems like we would be throwing the baby out with the bathwater to not use the market forces that you bring up in your book so nicely. But well, it it depends what we mean by socialism, right? I think some young people, particularly in the states, when they say socialism, they mean a decent healthcare system. Right. And I'm a huge fan of government-provided healthcare. I think it's loopy to try and run a private system uh, to provide healthcare. Um, and we could talk more about that. But I think there are other essential, inherently monopolistic services where we don't want competition to be driving what people do. We want a sense of the common good to be driving what people do. So I don't want the doctor looking at a patient and thinking about he, how he maximizes um, his revenue or how she maximizes her bonus. I want her to be thinking about the health of the patient. Um, and so... You know, I, I think similar, uh, similarly in, in things like water provision and other sort of natural monopolies um, where it really makes sense to have the government running things. The question is whether it really, really makes sense to have the government running the cosmetics companies or, you know, the car companies. Because the thing about the government is there's only one of it. And what we think we know about anyone who's given total charge of any industry is they have to be watched. So in the case of a government-provided healthcare, you have to have a lot of people looking at the quality and the costs and benchmarking and continually trying to make sure that, you know, the service doesn't get fat and lazy because, hey, you have to come to me because there's no competition. What competition gives you is that focus on efficiency and innovation. It's, uh, it's interesting. Right before I jumped on this uh, call with you, I was meeting with a group of CEOs in the States, the wonders of Zoom. <laughs> and they were all from businesses that I would never have imagined. Like, there is a business in Dallas that specializes in providing restaurants with performance software as to how they can improve their performance. Like, that's a business. You know, this is the kind of thing that capitalism gives you. The thing is, capitalism is like a tiger. And we have to keep a tiger on a leash. So what capitalism will give you is 58 flavors of toothpaste. But if you don't regulate it and control it, it will give you massive inequality. In capitalism, inequality is a feature, not a bug. You know, the people who work harder get rich. We want that. It means they work harder. But we didn't have in mind that, let me see, the Walton siblings have more wealth between them than the bottom half of the population in the U.S. 50 individuals worldwide own more wealth than the bottom half of the population. This immense concentration of power. I just don't believe that I need to be able to give $50 billion to my children to motivate to get me to get out of bed in the morning. I mean, that's just crazy. So it's all about limits and restraints. That's what's important. It's, it's like... It's like any healthy marriage that, you know, we used to think 
that, you know, the one guy runs it all and calls all the shots and women are just his like polite handmaid, at least in some parts of the world. Now, no one would think that was a healthy marriage. What we need is the balance of, of forces. So government keeps the market in check. The market provides the independence and the resources to support the government and keep it in check. And civil society is, is watching the other two really carefully. So to me, and, and I think... I will say, I do think that's the best of the European systems. Mm. When I look at mm -hmm. the innovative nature of many of the Scandinavian economies, not perfect, under stress, when I look at Denmark or Germany, I mean, Germany is the world's manufacturing powerhouse. They have very low levels of inequality. They are incredibly innovative. Sweden now looks, by some measures, more innovative than the U.S., And, you know, that prides itself on being, oh, we're so free market, you know. Uh, we don't want, I think, either the state unchecked or the market unchecked. Mm -hmm. We want a balance between them. At least when I say we, I guess I mean me. <laughs> I, I, believe, I believe that that's the way forward. Now, of course, I may be wrong. I, you know, I don't know. This is an incredibly complicated system. But as we look at history, that's, that kind of balance seems to be what's driven social welfare for, for, most, for the majority of people. Yeah. So I want to go back to what you said about how inequality is a feature, not a bug, of capitalism. It's, it's inevitable and, and the, the motivation to become wealthy is a crucial part of the capitalist drive. So, elephant in the room, what are your thoughts for on a tax for the super wealthy? This is a question from the audience. Okay. Do you think billionaires would or should exist in this reimagined, purpose-driven capitalist world? So I think there are two important ways to think about inequality. One is inequality of opportunity and one is inequality of outcome. So inequality of opportunity is about making sure that everyone, no matter the color of their skin or where they are born, has a real chance to participate in our society and to develop their own gifts. And for me, that means real spending in education and healthcare, and really supporting the provision of good quality jobs in every way that's appropriate. So how do we think about inequality of outcome? Because, you know, Nava, you work super hard. You come up with a fabulous product. I'm actually just yearning for polka dot uh, lipstick. And you find a way to make that happen. And so you get rich. So the question is, should you be able to keep everything you make? So two ways to think about this. One is that you succeeded in part because you're in a society that gave you the tools, the education, the employees, the distribution networks that enabled you to become rich. So my classic example of this is Oprah Winfrey, who's made a great deal of money and of whom I am a huge fan. But a hundred years ago, Oprah would not have made billions and billions of dollars. She is standing on the shoulders of global distribution networks and a global market that she didn't create. She has a fantastic talent, which is why I mention her, um, and more power to her. But to say that, like, I made every penny is just not the case. So that's one thing to think about. The other is, I believe this enormous concentration of wealth is politically so dangerous. My colleague, Lawrence Lessig, who's a professor in the law school at Harvard, sometimes jokes that here in the US, we don't have a 
a republic of the states, we have a republic of the Larrys, where the Larrys are the people who make, you know, you pick a number, I think he picks 3 billion or 10 billion or 15 billion. But these are the people, and we know this, who get their phone calls returned by politicians, who get their policy preferences enacted into law. We know that from the political science research that the concentration of wealth is incredibly corrosive. And even if 50% of the billionaires are Democrat and 50% are Republicans, I don't want billionaires setting my policies. I want all of us to be trying to decide together where we go as a society. The, uh, the founding fathers in the U.S. said the money power had to be controlled. <laughs> and so, yes, I'm absolutely up for a wealth tax. I think it's entirely appropriate. And I think, I mean, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates are the only billionaires I know who've come forward and said, you should tax us. But I personally believe I should pay more tax, that I've been incredibly fortunate that I am you know, a beneficiary of this incredible global economy. I can give talks all over the world and that I should be paying my share, fair share towards those education and healthcare systems and to make sure that I'm not a politically dominant voice. Um, and I think everyone who really values the long-term health of the society in which they're embedded and of their children should, uh, should feel the same way. Yeah. Um, you know, this pandemic has definitely uh, had a lot of us take a pause and reflect on the kind of world we want to actually create and be in. Um, what is your sense? I mean, a lot of people are just waiting for things to go back to normal, but we don't know when that'll be. What is your sense about how we can use this moment, this window into kind of the fundamentals that the pandemic has given us to be able to take us to this next level of, of understanding and collective action? So I fear that things are not going to go back to normal. Um, I fear a major depression. One of the CEOs I was talking to was a mortgage broker, and he believes that we're going to see waves and waves of foreclosure and huge financial distress. Um, so I think this is going to be very difficult. And of course, it already is a very difficult moment for many people. Um, in the US, we're closing in on quarter of a million deaths. That, that's grandmothers and cousins and it's, it's really, really distressing. So could there be a silver lining to what we're going through? I think there could. I think the problem of inequality is much more visible, that mm -hmm. we are seeing in the statistics and in our communities that there are people who cannot afford to stop working and do not have, uh, cannot afford to stay home, and who are dying at disproportionately higher rates as a result. Um, and I'm hoping that one of the things the pandemic is doing is building real compassion for the communities in which we're embedded. And as all of us spend more time at home, I mean, I'm incredibly privileged and I find it hard. And I think of people who are home with young children, um, who cannot reach out to family and friends in small spaces. I mean, I, I hope we'll learn to be more gentle with each other and more aware of just how dependent we are on everyone else. I mean, the idea that I can just maximize my own profits and the rest of the world can go is like so clearly exploded. The other thing that's happening is COVID makes the idea of risk real. I spent a lot of my professional career saying, if we do not deal with problems like climate change and inequality, things will get a lot worse. Mm 
And I spend a lot of time, people look at me going, yeah, maybe Rebecca, you know, like go away, I'm busy. I think what COVID does is it really heightens the idea that risks are real. I mean, everyone had pandemic on their list of potential major risk. But now some of the CEOs I'm talking to said, are saying, you know, I used to design for low cost and efficiency. Now I'm going to design for resilience because it's very clear that major shocks can happen. I mean, a lot of people have said it, but COVID is the pop quiz. Climate change is the final exam and there's not going to be a vaccine. Right. You know, we need to move in advance of the disaster. So I think that's good news. And last but not least, it's become super clear that we need governments. I mean, when you look at which societies have done better, it's government where government enjoyed the trust of its people, where there was a strong investment in public health, and where there was an investment in a capable bureaucracy that have done much better in driving their death rates down. I did a talk just a couple of days ago, Friday, in Denmark, and I'm looking on my screen, and everyone's just sitting around, like, without masks, <laughs> you know, um, because they've, they've managed to contain, to contain the disease. So um, yeah. there are definitely different ways to do this. So I'm hoping that the pandemic will help us. I'm so scared, Nava, that we'll come out of it poor, poorer. And, you know, we've, we've had to spend a lot of money to take care of people. And I'm afraid that, that people will just go, oh, no, we're, we're too poor to do anything. I'm a huge fan of the Green New Deal. I think there are investments we can make that will really strengthen our society in the long run and put people back to work and address problems like climate change. So I think this is really a place for sensible government policy, but also a place for business to step up and say, you know, like, here's how we think we can, we can make this work. Yeah, just because, you know, like the exam analogy that you said, you know, like, you know that in the UK, often you don't have the exams very, you have them only at the end of the year. Oh, so yes. You don't really study until the very end. And, you know, we know from behavioral research that that's, we need constant reminders and salience in order to be vigilant. Right. And I think right now this is salient. Yeah. And we have a chance to make things that uh, are, are front of mind right now more permanent so that if and when they recede, the infrastructure or the institutions will be there. Right. Um, well, I mean, here's, here's the amazing thing, and I think our data on this is quite good, that most companies can cut their energy use by nearly 50% and see rates of returns of, 25 to 15, of 12 to 15%. I mean, it, I'm not saying, you know, business can take us there and it's all a win-win, but, but there's a huge amount of money to be made in paying attention to these issues. And they've been too small and too marginal and people have put them off to the corner. As salience grows, I think we will see real progress. We are seeing real progress. So I want to take just the last few minutes we have um, to, you are very in, 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 um, in favor of people taking action and using their lives to, to, uh, to create change in the world. So the, the, the last chapter of your book is wonderfully titled Pebbles in an Avalanche of Change, Finding Your Own Path Towards Changing the World. And there are, there are several questions in the Q&A really about the advice you have for, for students who want to reshape capitalism, for people who are getting out there. Um, what, what advice do you have for how they can be part of this movement? Start where you are. And be okay with starting small. 
I'm afraid that unless you're very special, no one is going to arrive and tell you, this is the path to saving the world. There is no perfect pathway, but there is so much that needs to be done. If you're working for a company, if you're an employee, look around. See what your employee can do better. Uh, so often we focus on CEOs because they make for good stories, but my research suggests that change is often driven by employees finding opportunities or making a fuss at the local level. You're a customer. Make a fuss about what you buy, particularly the big ticket items like houses and cars. Um, that can make a real difference. You're a neighbor. Uh, we know from the social psychological research that if you put solar panels on your roof, the odds are that the people around you will do so go up. If you decide to fly less or you decide to eat less meat, these are real actions that can significantly reduce your own carbon profile, but they also encourage other people around you to do the same thing. That in itself is not going to get us where we need to go. Everyone in the UK and the US could stop eating meat and stop flying and, and insulate their houses, and that would be fantastic. It wouldn't be enough. We have to drive massive technological solutions at scale to address problems like climate change, and that means government policy. And so vote. Get active in politics. Get engaged. If you're an investor, um, Start asking, like, are we using these metrics? Are we thinking about the long-term effects of problems like climate change and inequality on the value of our portfolio? Do we know what our customers want? So many uh, asset owners want their asset managers to start caring about these problems and, and, and really doing it. And, and last but not least, two things. One, in my experience, it's easy to get kind of depressed about what's happening in the world. You know, I wake up at four in the morning, I think about what's happening to the Great Barrier Reef, or I think about people in India, you know, without adequate healthcare coverage, dealing with unimaginable problems. <sighs> Action is the best antidote to despair, I know. And it's the only thing we know that has any effect. <laughs> Sitting home and thinking good thoughts does nothing. We need a massive political, social, and cultural change. Those are driven by individuals. We need an avalanche of change, and change is driven by pebbles. We are all pebbles. None of us alone is going to change the world, but together we might, and I promise you, you will feel better if you try. Thank you, Rebecca, for giving all of us pebbles a path <laughs> for change, for action in this world on fire. Well, thank you, Nava. I know in your own life you are, you are a pretty big pebble. You've got a lot going. So, uh, but that's what I mean. I mean, one of the pleasures of doing this has been talking to literally thousands of people who care about these issues and are working so hard to drive change. I really think we can turn the corner on this and build genuinely a just, sustainable, and highly profitable society. Fantastic. I just want to uh, point out uh, Professor Henderson's book again, which uh, Reimagining Capitalism, highly encourage everyone to read it, to find all of the, the wonderful um, paths to change. And you don't even have to start before reading the book. You can start with all the great paths she gave us. Just look around, uh, recent graduates, people who are going into the supermarket after this talk. Um, there are paths everywhere for us. Um, thank you. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you to everyone who joined us um, virtually. 
and uh, may we all go forward and, and put our pebbles into the, into the avalanche.